Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Robert Dessay to Books, Books, Books to talk about his latest book, The Time of Our Lives, which is about growing older well and is published by Brio. Robert Dessay is a prize-winning writer of literary non-fiction, memoirs and essays. He's also published two novels, several short stories and one play. From 1985 to 1995, he presented the weekly books and writing program on ABC Radio National and since then, he's written and hosted several radio series and programs. He's been a full-time writer since 1995, and he lives in Hobart with his partner, Peter. Robert, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you very much, and God, pleased to be here. So, Robert, I want to start by asking you about the opening of the book, which finds you lying in a pavilion in a hotel just outside um, Yogyakarta in Java, watching some middle-aged guests doing a dancing fitness class to the sounds of Voulez-vous coucher avec moi? You find this unsettling. Why is that? I'm not sure that I quite know myself, actually, and I try to explore that question in the pages that follow. I think because, at root, I suspect that this kind of, well, these kinds of calisthenics, but I also include yoga and jogging, not to mention Tibetan drumming, of course, and mud baths and all the sorts of arguments that people apply to their bodies and their faces in particular are about warding off death. That would be the phrase I would use because death can't be denied really, but we do try to keep it at bay. And this is one of the ways. I suppose that in the book, I'm trying to say, look, just stop a minute. Just look at death. Just look it straight in the eye. If you want to practice yoga, please go right ahead. It's got huge social cachet. If you want to jog, please jog display your body anxieties to the world. It's none of my business, but I think it's useful when we do these sorts of things, and I go to Pilates myself, if we acknowledge that deep, deep down, what we're trying to keep at bay is dying and then death. And so the first half of the book, I look at the different ways people do this, whether they're effective or not, and I look at death actually, which I don't think has anything to fear about it. I think that as a non-believer, particular, death as nothingness is nothing to be afraid of. And that we put an awful lot of effort into warding off something which is natural, which will happen, whether you like it or not, will even happen to Jane Fonda, I need to tell you, even to Joanna Lumley, it will happen. There is no point in trying to look 24. There is some point in trying to put your best foot forward. I do agree with that. But I find that obsession with the body and with keeping it young, unsettling, it's a good word, your word, 
it's unsettling. It doesn't annoy me particularly, but it unsettles me. It makes me want to say, do you know what you're really doing? Let's just stop. Take a, a breath and a look at this. Robert, one of the points that you make is that there's a difference between a fear of dying and a fear of death itself. And I think what you say is that for many people, it's really, <clears throat> excuse me, it's really more a fear of dying rather than a fear of death itself. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, nowadays it is. 500 years ago, that wasn't so, of course, until you know about 1500. But that is just a conventional date. People were afraid of what might happen to them after death. That is to say, they were afraid of hell. I don't think probably in the Western world there are many people who are afraid of that anymore. Perhaps some um, very devout Buddhists or Hindus are afraid of rebirth of a kind that makes them feel afraid or anxious to avoid that kind of rebirth. But for most people in the Western world, it's actually not what we're afraid of anymore. We're afraid of growing frail, of growing ill, of not being looked after properly, and of course, I would say, of being alone. And in this book, Several chapters are devoted to the death of my partner's mother, Rita, in a very good aged facility here in Hobart. The loneliness every time we visit. And we used to visit about five times, not six times, but four times, five times a week. The loneliness was crushing. You could hear people screaming to be taken home. And this is in a good place. Take me home. Take me home. I want to go home. I want to go home. It's the sort of thing you hear in mental institutions as well, because my adoptive mother died in what was in those days called a lunatic asylum, actually. We were quite happy to use that particular word. The loneliness is just hideous to behold. Your children will not visit you very often, if they can possibly avoid doing so. In six months, we never saw anyone visit anyone at four o'clock in the afternoon. Perhaps they did at eight o'clock, perhaps they did at 10 o'clock. The loneliness is pitiful and is frightening. And that's one of the reasons, of course, that in this book, I'm writing to say, you know, you can't do very much about what the body or how the body falls apart a little, but not much. But you can do something about your inner life. I wanted to come to that because that seems to be one of the, if not perhaps the key message of the book. There are various ways that you talk about that you can stave off loneliness. One of them is, is intimate friendship, and we'll come to that a little bit later. But let's come now to what you've just mentioned, the concept of cultivating an inner life. You say that that's really the most important thing in old age and that it can act as an antidote both to loneliness and also to a fear of dying or death. And I just wanted to explore with you this idea of what an inner life means to you. You talk about it being a rooted pleasure, and I want to come back to that word rooted. You refer to uh, your friend Katerina. You have a lot of very wise women friends, by the way. Your friend Katerina, who says, your inner world has to be like a room full of conversations others will want to join. That seems to me a really beautiful description. What I'd like you to talk about is your idea of what an inner life and a life of the mind is. What does that mean to you? 
Well, it seems obvious at first, and you think, well, of course, everyone must have an inner life. Surely, I look out the window, I'm looking out the window now, watching people walk by in the street. Surely they have inner lives. Not everybody does, actually. And I think in 2020, fewer people have an inner life because they make sure by putting headphones on when they're walking along the street, by turning the television on when they get home, that there is always noise preventing them from having an inner life. And I don't think, my partner Peter doesn't think, that his mother, Rita, who dies in the course of the novel, really had an inner life. So what have I come to think an inner life is? It's not, you see, from my point of view, just memory, let's say. In fact, I'm not a great fan of memory. I think it's a very good idea to forget a lot of things if you possibly can. They just weigh you down. You don't need them. Just let them go. Let them drift off into a big blur. If someone wants you to recall something with a trigger, you may well do that. It's not just going over the movie that you saw last week or reading books or talking to friends over mahjong or whatever it might be, cup of coffee. Something more than that. And during the writing of this book, I came to see it more as something like a dance. And that's why the book opens with a dance. The first line is a dance. First line is from Wilbukushevika. And the last line is a dance in Java, a Javanese dance. I see it as a dance now because I think it is something that you have to start choreographing as early as possible in your life. I would suggest the age of four, actually, possible, and at the very latest, the age of six. But if you're 84 and still haven't started, by all means, start now. It's never too late. Well, it is too late, but it's always worth starting now if you don't have one. It's choreographed. It's intricate. It's self-knowledge, but it is, as you've hinted, above all, a conversation. Some people are happy to just converse with themselves. Some people need another person, a man or a woman. I think women by far the best sort of um, companions to have as, as uh, conversationalists. It depends on you. You need a conversation. You need at least two voices. Three is good. Four is good. Six is good. Eight is good. A conversation does have its own footwork. And also, it has a kind of musicality, I think. It has repetition. Conversations have repetition. It has known rituals that you feel comfortable with, as a dance does. And these rituals, these repetitions, holds the whole, the W-H-O-L-E, together. If you just read the odd book, occasionally ring up your friend Charlie or chat to the dog, you've got the problem that your inner life will become so dispersed that it has no, he's not able to replace what I want to replace in this book, as you'll have noticed, the concept of soul, which I find a bit old fashioned, really. It sounds as if you've got some sort of ghostly self hovering in your chest. I don't know where else it might hover in your head, perhaps, which is not how I see the world at all. Whereas this inner conversation, which goes on for 23 hours a day, is compact but rich and is rooted. You say that 
this inner life is shaped by an unending, playful curiosity about the world, but it must be a rooted curiosity. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, in my case, for example, the root is language. Ever since I've been a tiny little boy, I have fantasized about language, made up my own language, as I explained in my very first book, A Mother's Disgrace. But I learned Russian when I was a child. I learned French when I was a child because my adoptive father insisted, knowing that my ancestry was French. I went on at school to learn German. I learned Latin. Went to Finland and learned Finnish. To a point, it's too difficult really to learn well. And so most of my fantasies, even my literary fantasies, have revolved around language. That has been sort of the central column in my fantasy. And that goes very deep. Language goes deep. So that's your root, Robert. So that's your root, is the language and the passion for language. I think so. But for some people, I think for many people, it will be music. And I think that is rarer nowadays. That is the, the different narratives that religion brings into your life, thinking about them, going to church on Sundays. That is a very useful sort of um, rootedness to have because, of course, the church goes back 2,000 years. And it goes back beyond that if you want to look at the roots of Christianity itself. I think this produces a, a rich inner life. And in the book, I look at Javanese classical dancing. That's why the book ends with that, because, well, I watch children do it, actually. In this book, I, I always make a point of watching well-trained adults do it as well when I'm there. But it goes back to Indian myth, actually, even though Central Java is now uh, a Muslim culture. But it goes back to Indian myth, religious myth. It's grounded in a world of belief and experience, Javanese classical dancing. Every single movement of your little finger is grounded. The music is grounded, the gamelan music that um, you are dancing to. And this is what I like. It may not necessarily be broad. These um, Jogjakarta kids that I was watching learning how to dance with a private teacher. I mean, these weren't just any kids learning how to dance at school. They may be interested in football and in, I don't know, uh, Kylie Minogue or anything really as well. They probably don't read. Java is not a reading culture. But those kids I was watching are rooted narrowly even in uh, the culture of dance and in Indian culture because it all goes back to India. And this is what I think produces the best kind of inner life. It doesn't have to be broad. Mm. Is that what gives your life cohesion, Robert? It's cohesion. And in having footwork, in having choreography, mm. that's what makes it work. So that I go to concerts. I'm not a knowledgeable person when it comes to music, but I know what I love. I love the music from, you know, about... 18, well, Beethoven, everyone loves Beethoven. From about 1890 to about 1940, uh, I love Prokofiev. Uh, I love other Russian composers, actually. I love uh, Debussy. That's the period that I love. And so when I go to concerts, it gives me joy if those composers are included in the nights. 
of course, I'm open to listening to composers I've never heard before. I mean, who isn't? But I think there's some sort of wisdom in deepening your love for what you already love. Let's talk a little bit about the concept of old age. You speak of your aim to live through to what you translate as a fine old age. You take a French expression and you, you translate it as a fine old age and you make the point that that means a life that's filled with beauty, not necessarily with virtue. What would or what does a fine old age look like to you right now? Well, you have to be fortunate up to a point. And I don't apologise for being fortunate. One of the best books I read on old age by Diana Atthill, the English writer and publisher, who died at 101, by the way, admits openly, I've been fortunate. I've been to Oxford. I was well-educated. I'm not rich, but I'm well-educated. I've had a great life. I live in a civilised country. I live in a civilised country. I'm loved. I have good friends. Unfortunate. I'm well enough to go to Pilates every week and, um, you know, do my flexibility exercises. But given that sort of basis, I suppose what I have in mind is a strong sense of beauty. Because the French expression I was thinking was in belle vie, which is what the French say. The French not being very interested in virtue, they never have been interested in virtue, but they are interested in beauty. Um, it's uh, Americans who are interested in virtue, I think, and it's the sort of Puritan heritage. But when you get to my age, really, that's a luxury. Uh, you go more for things that lift you and make you feel inwardly jubilant when you look at them or listen to them or hold them in your expectation. So for me, a lot of it has to do with travel, of course. It has to do with being wiped clean by travelling, which is part of what he said in Java. Wiped clean, the slate of my being is wiped clean. I am innocent and good again. And then I open my eyes, I talk to anyone. I do all sorts of things I can't do in Hobart because it's a small town. I climb the Himalayas. I see the sublime, which I can't see in Tasmania. Tasmania is beautiful and very pretty in many places, but beautiful in parts. But it's not sublime. India, Ladakh, for example, West Bengal, up around Darjeeling. Sublime. So, Robert, I'm afraid I have to ask, what has been the impact on you this year of not being able to travel like that? What impact does that have? What, what kind of a dent has that made on your um, mission of li living a, a fine life and, a, and having a good old age? Well, you will also know, having read the book with such tension, that... I also say, quoting André Gide, actually, the French writer, there is no point if you want to have a happy life, in some broad sense, in wanting things you can't have. It's one of the great pieces of wisdom that André Gide passed on to me. It's one of his characters that says it, actually. It's not André, but one of his youthful books. So I can't travel. 
I can't travel. There you go. I accept it. I'm not going to ruin the year by desiring things I can't have. So that's the key, isn't it? The acceptance. That's, that's the mental key. You can still dream and you can chat with your friends, but I am not suffering. I'm one of the immensely blessed, as my mother would have said, being a Presbyterian, of this world. Let me ask about something else that you say, and you spend quite a bit of time on it, and I'd like you to, uh, to just ex- explore it a little bit. You say that one of the other tricks for growing older well is to never grow up in the first place, and you've had close friends that have suggested to you that that's one of the reasons why you are living so well. How do you do that, Robert? How do you manage not to, uh, not to grow up in the first place? It wasn't a plan, of course. It's just that I failed. I think I use the word failed. I failed to grow up. I'm not quite sure why. When it was first said to me in front of an audience in Byron Bay, actually, and then I thought, well, you know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a fault of mine? Is it a gay thing, perhaps? And at some level, I think it perhaps is a gay thing because if you're gay, at least until recently when you had to get married, which I hadn't done, of course, being opposed to marriage, you could not shoulder as many responsibilities. Well, you talk about is it a gay thing. I was thinking about it more, is it, is it a not having children yourself thing? That's, that's a part of it, isn't it? It is. In fact, it maybe is the most important part. But I think things like mortgages and, you know, owning two cars when you really don't need any cars at all, all that sort of thing plays into it. I do not feel responsible for anyone really except up to a point, my partner, with whom I've lived for 40 years after all, and my dog, because my dog would die without me. But I can play a lot more than a man with three children and a mortgage and a wife and all the sorts of things that family brings into your life is able to do. I can play a lot more. The point about play, though, is that In my book, play needs to be both disciplined as well as playful. Does it need to be purposeful? I don't think so. I'm pleased you asked that question because I've been thinking about that over the last few weeks. I don't think so. You see, if you play chess, for example, you don't have to think about the purpose of chess. If you play football, I mean, you can make up a purpose that you know, it's healthy to run around falling over for an hour and a half every week, but you can pretend that sport is healthy. I don't think playing has to be, sport is a business actually, it's not just um, playing. Play is its own justification. You don't have to justify it beyond the pleasure it gives. And so... I don't think it has to have a purpose. I mean, I could say, I'm learning Indonesian, for example, at the moment. It's play. I will never speak Indonesian. I'm hopeless. I'm learning too late. It doesn't matter. It's fun. I love it. That's something else I want to ask you about, because you talk about that in the book. And I know that you learned to speak Russian at a very, very young age and that you're fluent in that. You're fluent in French. And I think you say, or you make the point in the book, that because you're learning Indonesian at this late state in your life, you don't need to learn it perfectly. You just need to learn it well enough. But is that one of the 
we'll come to this in a moment, something you talk about, the pleasures of old age and of growing older. Is that one of the pleasures that perhaps when you were younger, you when you wanted to speak Russian, you wanted to speak French, you wanted to do it perfectly, very well. But coming to Indonesian at such a later stage in your life, you can approach it, I suppose, in a more playful manner and not set yourself such high goals, but still take enormous pleasure from it. You do care, I find, talking to my ageing friends, usually about something that is much broader than you are. That is, it might be animal welfare, or it might be global warming, or it might be homelessness. It's very, very common amongst my friends to care about something like that, because it's difficult to be happy knowing that there are, let's say in Hobart, 200 people sleeping on the street every night when you go to bed comfortably in your uh, middle-class house. So you do care about something, but you don't care so much about the sorts of things you cared about when you were younger in order to get a job, in order to make your mark in the world. When you're older, you've either made your mark or you haven't. You're not going to make a new mark now. So there's a huge release in that, a huge freedom in that, in simply not caring an awful lot. It doesn't matter whether I go to see the movie I'm going to see tonight or not. I bought a ticket. If something happens and I can't go, it doesn't matter. Once upon a time, it mattered. And one became a little indignant if one was denied some pleasure or denied some right. One doesn't talk about rights anymore. Robert, one of the... uh important skills that you say that you have learnt as you've aged is knowing when to give up. What have you given up on? <laughs> Owning things, probably. I do have some beautiful things, but there's a whole chapter there about needing to have only what you need plus a little bit. What's the word for that? Yutori, Japanese word. Well, it applies both to friends, it applies to time, it applies to every aspect of life, really. It works really well if you have just what you need, the number of friends that you need, the number of toasters in the house, plus a little bit. Just enough time to get to the airport, plus a little bit. It's, I think, a very freeing concept. And as I go on in the book, I try to embody it more and more. And I think if you talk about your life, you don't need to live to 180. You need to live as long as you want to live, plus a little bit perhaps, to do some unexpected things in. Let's talk now about happiness and contentment. You have a chapter on both of those. In one of the, uh, the early stages before you get to that chapter, you say, which I think is a really lovely thing, that you think you have a flair for happiness. Who or what makes you most happy? Well, when I say that at the beginning of the book, I still haven't quite worked out what I mean by the word. And now I think about it. I think what I meant was I have a flair for contentment. I think I'm open to happiness, but my flair is for contentment. And that is partly because, as we've said, I accept who I am and what I've got. 
Let's talk about the difference between the two, Robert, the difference between happiness and contentment and whether the finding of contentment is perhaps something that comes in old age, that perhaps when you're younger you you find happiness more, but ideally as you get older you feel contentment. I couldn't put it better myself. When you're younger you want bursts of happiness and joy and jubilation. You think you have a right to it. And so you go to pop concerts and you have a lot of sex and all that sort of thing, which brings great bursts of it, great mm, explosion, fireworks of joy. And I would use the word happiness for that. And I explain some of the things that make me happy, and particularly, for example, listening to Freddie Mercury uh, singing Mama, that sort of thing, listening to certain pieces by Beethoven. Beethoven can make me feel joyous. And some other composers as well, Prokofiev, for example, Romeo and Juliet. Some meetings with friends, leaving for the airport when I'm going somewhere like northern India, for example, or Sri Lanka, or not Paris anymore, Java. But as you get older, I think happiness becomes rarer. It's too much to ask. One has seen too much. One is almost inured against these great conflagrations of elation and joy. But one, by the same token, has greater contentment because one is not going anywhere. One has what one has. One feels whole. One has begun to flower, I think. But I wanted to ask you about that concept of flowering. One of the reasons that you give in the book for, for feeling increasingly content is your sense of, and you use the expression, flowering at last. I thought that was really interesting. My first question is, how have you flowered? But my second question is, why did you say at last? Seems to me you've always flowered. I have flowered since I was young in, at certain periods, I suppose. Uh, as a teacher, I, I think I was a good teacher. But also as a writer, each book has been well-received. I mean, I've never written bestsellers, but has been well-received. I feel rewarded. But when you're younger, you still believe that something can happen which will make you a star. Well, it's not going to happen, actually. It's not going to happen to many human beings, a handful on the entire planet. But you have a kind of anxiety all your life that you deserve more why aren't you getting it while this writer or that singer or that man or that woman is getting it? At the age I'm in at now, of course, I don't think like that at all. I'm grateful for all the joy and contentment I've had in my life and simply take pleasure whenever new explosions of joy happen. But I don't I feel that I have come into flower. I do understand that that means that I will also wilt and die. It's the Japanese sense of beauty. A bloom that is perfect is really not perfect. A bloom that is starting to get brown edges on the petals, that is perfect. Well, I've got brown edges. And so you have to learn to go deeper and deeper into that kind of pleasure in being alive. I mean, I put my roots down, I have been nourished, and now 
there is a bloom. Mm. One of the other reasons you give for why you feel you are flowering, why you have this sense of contentment at this age, is that you you say you've run out of bullshit. What do you mean by that? Tell us a little bit about, about what you meant by that. Well, when you're younger, I think it's natural. I think it's good. You experiment with all sorts of kinds of bullshit. You will experiment with Jesus, perhaps, or with Marxism. I mean, they were the two favourites in my time. You experiment, perhaps, with going to India and finding a guru and holding your hands in front of yourself and saying, um, or om, isn't it? That's right, not um. You experiment with all sorts of things, and I think that is well and good. And I don't regret any of it. But when you get older, my experience is, and it's the, it's the experience of most of the women in my book, you don't believe any of that anymore. Really, it's bullshit. It's bullshit which comforts some people, but it also makes people angry and unfulfilled and anxious. I mean, it's been interesting to me talking about death and talking about nothingness, for example. I believe that after death, what you get is nothing because there's not only nothing there, there is no there, there. My experience is that people who believe there is something there are more anxious and in some ways unhappy than people who don't believe. If you don't believe, you just leave all that aside. It's like not being interested in sport, which I'm not. It's just such a huge relief. A whole area of anxiety and worry and masculinity drops away. And you can get on with doing much more pleasurable things. Robert, of course, you have experienced death in some way, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about what happened. Was it 2001 that you had, you had a heart attack? I think it was 2011. It's in my filing cabinet, but I can't ever quite remember. Yes, I had a heart attack and I died twice, according to the document in my filing cabinet. And they applied paddles, I think it's called, and back I came. I'm harder to get rid of than would appear, you see. I look quite frail, but I'm not actually as frail as I look. And there was nothing there. Now, I'm perfectly, there was no there. You simply, well, it's just like your, your phone losing its charge. The, the memory in the phone doesn't go anywhere. Um, where would it go precisely? Once you accept that, it's a great relief. I do understand that some people have experiences which they don't feel can be explained in any other way than by believing in some sort of self which does not die, which does not come to an end. I've had experiences myself which I cannot explain with science. And I think all you can say is, not about being dead, but other sorts of experiences which seem to point to a self which is not just what the five senses register. What can you say to people when they say, but I also have died. I was run over. I died. I was brought back by the ambulance crew. And I saw my family. I saw a great burst of light. And I talked to Uncle Albert, there is nothing you can say. All you can say is, 
That is fascinating. Tell me more. Robert, I wondered what impact that, you know, for want of a better expression, near-death experience had on the way. So that was when you were in your 60s, your early to mid-60s, and that was nearly 10 years ago. It was mid-60s, yes, maybe even late 60s, yes. So what impact did that have on the way you lived your life? And I don't mean did you start to eat better and exercise or go to Pilates class more. What impact, if any, did that have on your thinking about old age and about how to age well? I'm going to disappoint you. I don't think it had much effect. What, what had an effect on me was the HIV diagnosis, yes. which is now 25 years ago. I was 50 years old. I had just one book to my name, that's a mother's disgrace. It came out the same year, actually. That did have a huge effect because at that time it was a death sentence. I was given five years. That was very common uh, to live. And it was explained to me precisely how I would die. And interestingly, given all the present debates about this, I found the medical profession very helpful about helping me to commit suicide if I wished to. I know they're not supposed to do that, but I found there to be no problem about that, avoiding the extremely distressing um, reality of how people die uh, if they have HIV. Nowadays, probably only in Africa, I suppose, or perhaps South America. That had a big effect and how I looked on the importance of living not in the moment. I mean, that's what slaters do and blowflies, but on living in the now, I suppose, in some broader sense than that, in loving what you've got, in not trying to give life a purpose through achieving things, which is what Western society hammers, particularly American society achieving things, that started to fade mm. then, in 1996, I think it was, 95. And I really haven't done it since. You want to be alive and to love and to have joy and to, well, to bloom, of course, to create beauty, to be creative. And I think being creative is a very important part of being older in a good way. Why is that? Why is it important? Why is being creative uh, an important antidote to some of the, the more negative aspects of growing older? Because creativity, now this is going to sound technical, but I don't mean it that way. Creativity is simply activating your inner life. The interface between your inter, inner life and what you see and hear and smell and touch. You look out and you see, let's say, sexual harassment. And as a novelist, you decide to do something with that. You let your inner life, your inner knowledge, your inner feelings, feelings is, of course, really the word, interact with what you have just read and seen and, and produce something, broadly speaking, beautiful. Not that it may not be terrible, but beautiful. You are going to talk about it in a way that your inner life has reconfigured for you. Your inner life kaleidoscopes your outer life. And that's what we mean by 
creativity. And for you, is your creativity or your main creativity your writing? For me, it's writing. For some, it would be painting. And in fact, the woman who talks to me about it is an Indonesian painter. She's the person who introduces the subject in the book, a well-known Indonesian painter who said to me that she feels so happy at the age of, what is she, 86, I think, 84, 86, that she feels she almost can't paint anymore because she feels so contented and happy. She's converted to Buddhism, by the way, which, of course, I resist doing in the book and in life as well. Mm, I think the creativity, and it could be in creating a garden or in being a good grandparent or in redecorating the house or in being a good friend. Friendship can be very creative. In being a good lover, in being a good partner, can be in many ways, creating music, all sorts of ways. But for me, it's writing, yes, it's words. It's, it's, I reconfigure the world with Robert's English. And Robert's English is rooted in French and Russian and Latin and German and other languages. And so, my inner life shakes the world like this and then looks at the new pattern that has emerged. That's what I do. Like a snow globe. That's right. Robert, I'm glad you mentioned friendship because I wanted to talk about that as well. There's some lovely writing in here about the importance of friendship and friendship as being an antidote, obviously, to loneliness. And there's a lovely quote you talk about from a, uh, an Ingmar Bergman movie where one of the characters says loneliness is the punishment for not caring enough about others could you talk a little bit about that well it was a cruel thing to say that's from wild strawberries the Bergman movie wild strawberries which is about an old man and it's a day in the life of an old man going to receive a prize and I think he's right I think that you can't have real friends particularly friends who will be a consolation to you unless you're worth Befriending. You can't just demand friends. You have to be worth befriending. And to be worth befriending, you have to have an inner life. Knowing who won all the Melbourne Cups back to 1934 doesn't make you worth befriending. Knowing who won mm, the Rugby League last weekend doesn't make you worth befriending. It might make you tolerable as someone to stand next to in a bar. It doesn't make you worth befriending in my sense of the word. That is to worth interweaving your life with, opening up to, showing your vulnerabilities to, asking difficult questions of, and hoping to be asked difficult questions of back. In my experience, women make the best friends. This beautiful book is written, uh, as it were, much of it is a series of conversations that you've had with people about these important issues relating to ageing well. And I was going to ask you exactly about that. It seemed to me that most of the conversations that you have, not all, but most are with women. I've written down Sarah, Katerina, Andrea, Andrea, Katrine, Barbara. Is that deliberate and do you find it easier to have conversations about this subject matter with women and if so why is that on any subject matter really to be quite honest I don't think it's the fault of men I just think that in our sort of society western society American society Canadian Australian Zen society our notions of masculinity are very limited 
And one of the things I like about India and Java is they're not as limited as they are here. You can be fully male in all sorts of ways that we don't really quite approve of here. It makes men feel uncomfortable and vulnerable. Of course, there are exceptions. And I'm continually being told that the younger generation is different and more adventurous and less competitive in its masculinity. And I do hope that that's true. But I don't belong to the younger generation. Not many 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds are going to want to be my friend. My friends are going to probably be mostly over 45. And so amongst Australians over 45 or amongst well, Germans as well, obviously, Europeans in general, it's going to be women where I'm most likely to find people who don't simply say, I think this about Ingmar Bergman. I felt this when I watched Wild Strawberries. What did you feel? The last bit they won't say. Women will say the last bit. What did you feel? Do you agree with Ingmar Bergman about this? A man will tell you, what he thinks about Ingmar Bergman, he will tell you how many Ingmar Bergman movies he's seen. He probably won't go on to say, what did you think about this line on friendship and loneliness? Whereas women, by large, I mean, I'm generalizing. Women will do that perfectly happy. Happily, all the women in the book do that. And so I become more indeterminate. And you probably didn't notice, but in the book, in the conversations with all these women, Robert is much less bolshy, more likely to say, oh, really, do you think so? I wonder if that's true. Oh, goodness, maybe I've been wrong all along. Whereas when Robert is simply talking to the reader, he's much more self-assured and lays down the law. Um, there is no God, there is no soul, there is nothing. Because I'm reverting to Western masculinity, I suppose. So that's my take on all this. In life, I have people I would call friends who are men, of course, but my intimate friends are all women. Robert, one of the things you've said about this book is that you hope that one of the things the book might do is to encourage people to recreate a new self. How do you do that? Well, it's not a self-help book, of course, as you know, and so I don't sort of give instructions, I suppose, for that kind of thing. But I think you should look to what it is you love most and what it is you love second most in the world and start considering those things more and more deeply and perhaps obsessively talk to them, talk to people who also love those things and see what grows out of that. I mean, that's what happened for me with Indonesia. I thought I'll go to Jogjakarta to have a look at Borobudur, the great ancient Buddhist site. And then gradually I started to talk to and meet with and read books by people who know a lot more about Indonesia than I do, and about Java in particular. And gradually, a new Robert came into being. I mean, he looks from outside very much like the old Robert, but actually all sorts of new things have happened inside him. Uh, my ideas about Islam have changed, for example, having 
experienced Islam up close in central Java, I'm probably less tolerant of Islam than I once was when it was just something out there. I'm very interested in women's rights. And from my point of view, Western civilization gives women the most power, actually. And that's the sort of world I like to live in, regardless of what people who are politically correct think correctly about these matters might say. But it's opened up. I have created a slightly differently shaped self from the one that existed four years ago. Going to India changed me. Looking into history, you, you choose something, you think, I love this, and then you do it. I encourage people reading the book to write down what you love. You think you know, but in, and I don't mean, you know, Cadbury Dairy Milk, but something really big and deep, not big, but deep. That seems a really good place to stop, Robert. Thank you so much for talking to me today on Books, Books, Books. I wish you all the very best with your wonderful book, which is about a topic that's so important to all of us. We're all growing older. Um, We've all know and love people who are growing older and um, your book is a tonic and it's just full of so many wise, wonderful observations that I, I recommend it to everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.